0: FlushCare.com/slash/weightloss.
1: Four women were crowned in England between 1509 and 1559. Two queens consort, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, and two queens regnant. Their daughters, Mary I and Elizabeth I. The ritual of coronation was crucial for conferring legitimacy and sanctity. But the 16th century was a period of change, when many monarchs across Europe were ceasing to crown their sovereigns. England's Tudor coronations included that of the country's first acknowledged Queen Regnant, for whom decisions had to be made about what features to incorporate and they were performed during a time of religious upheaval and change, which would potentially alter the nature of the rite. In short, performing this ancient ceremony meant calling old verities into question. To explore these fascinating occasions and all they meant, I'm joined by the very best person in the world to talk about this, Dr. Alice Hunt. Dr. Hunt is an associate professor at the University of Southampton, and the author of a book which has received much scholarly acclaim, The Drama of Coronation, Medieval Ceremony in Early Modern England. She was also the co-editor with Professor Anna Whitelock, another friend of this podcast, of a collection of essays on Mary I and Elizabeth I, Tudor Queenship, The Reigns of Mary and Elizabeth. Dr. Hunt, Alice, it is such a pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I am so excited to talk to you about this because there's so much of interest in this subject. And let's be honest, it may be that there's a coronation in the next decade or so. And so we are preparing ourselves as a country for that. So I suppose the first question to ask is when regal power transfers to the successor? Because I know that there are nowadays two principles at work that sort of rex num qua morator, the king never dies. So that idea that the crown itself never dies, so the sovereignty will shift in the one instant from one monarch to the next. And then from 1701, there's been the act of settlement. So in parliamentary law, it's been established that when a new monarch succeeds, they succeed automatically. So there's this kind of seamless transition in constitutional legal terms. So when George VI died in February 1952, our current queen, Elizabeth II, automatically became queen. What was the principle at work in Tudor England, though?
0: In Tudor England, the legal position was that the king succeeded or the queen automatically on the death. So the king is dead, long live the king. There was also the hangover of the sense that the monarch was not monarch until the act of coronation, and that the act of coronation, particularly the act of anointing, was really important. And that's really when the monarch became the monarch and changed. So although there was the understanding that the office never died and that also was kind of reinforced during the 16th century with the proclamation, that became actually with Edward VI kind of a really important moment that you would proclaim the monarch on the death to really hammer it home that this had happened and that it didn't matter about the coronation. There was still a real rush to get the coronation underway. So whereas for our current queen, there was a long time between the death of her father and her coronation, they had lots of time to get it already. In the 16th century, it was never more than three months between the death of a monarch and the coronation of the successor. Between that time, the position of the monarch was quite fragile. So there was still an understanding that the ceremony did something and that it wasn't just a dramatisation or a performance of a truth that was already established a dual logic, a kind of legal logic and the hereditary principle, but also a kind of sacramental logic that the ceremony changed that person. They became monarch then. That's
1: so interesting. So there's a kind of liminal phase where they're in transition between when they're proclaimed, when they become king or queen, and when they are crowned. And so interesting also that you think that we have kind of hangover of that today, That is so unusual because coronations are now so unusual.
0: It's so kind of irrational. I mean, in 1953, at the coronation of our current queen, that moment of anointing, which the cameras were turned off, I mean, that was a hangover of that moment, that it's so solemn and so important that it couldn't be shown. I mean, that probably would be different now. And yet still, who's not going to watch a ceremony like that and have a kind of frisson of something's happening? That kind of power has lingered With these ceremonies that this country still seems to indulge in. So
1: what happens in a coronation? What is happening spiritually? What's happening in symbolic terms and you know, physically and literally what's happening?
0: I think so many things are going on. It kind of pulls together the kind of history of monarchy and mashes it all up into a ceremony. So on the one hand, there is an element of it being a kind of formal recognition and a consent of the congregation or those witnessing to agree to this monarch becoming monarch and that's really how the ceremony begins. The king, monarch, queen is led into the abbey and shown to all sides of the abbey and asked, you know, will you recognise this monarch as monarch and they all have to say yes. They need this kind of public consent. The oath is crucial, you know, it's really an oath taking ceremony as well and that has haunted monarchs since, from you know, Richard II to Charles I. They swear their oath, and that is to adhere to law, actually. So that's really important, that they will govern in a particular way, now that they will govern according to the Church of England. Before the Reformation, that didn't need to be articulated, but gradually that was folded into the oath that they would adhere to the Church of England. But then there's the anointing, and that was introduced into the ceremony of early medieval. This is a kind of physical change. It finds its precedent in the Bible, the anointing of biblical kings. What they're wanting to do is turn the king into the Lord's anointed and to effect their kind of changing, that their status changes, they become kind of infused with divine grace through the oil. The prayer that accompanies anointing articulates that a kind of physical change is happening. So that's the change. And then their dress. And they're undressed for the anointing. And then they're redressed. And that's when they put on the special clothes. Everything has got a kind of symbolic significance. Ring, scepter, orb, spurs for a male monarch. And only then, when they've been put together, basically dressed, looking pretty priestly, is the crown put on. That completes the change that the oil effected. And then they're led into Sir Edward's chair and all the peers um, and bishops bow down and this sort of act of homage.
1: And how much is that ceremony in the 16th century really exactly what it had been in the medieval period? Is this just continuity or do we see innovation?
0: There's a lot of continuity. Although I think what's really interesting, when Henry VIII is crowned in 1509, there hadn't really been an uncontroversial coronation for quite a long time. In the 16th century, we see five coronations. You know, there would be some people who would have seen every single coronation. But their memory, what would would have been the last medieval, you know, 1485 for Henry VII, I suppose. But Henry VII, if we go from Henry VII to Henry VIII, not very long, but, you know, the transition from medieval to Tudor, a lot of continuity. They used the same script, which had become stabilised in the 14th century, in the royal book, And they follow what they should be doing. And it's really detailed. I mean, it's like a play script. You know, at this point, archbishop moves here, do this, sit there, queen must wear this, king must be doing that. With all the language and the prayers that must be said at the moment, each prop is brought in. The regalia that was said to be, you know, Edward the Confessors, but that was the same, Edward's crown. So visually very similar and that was important. It was important that it was the same for the coronation of Henry the Seventh. The manuscript that survives that is a digest of the Liber Regalis, so the kind of script that was prepared for that coronation, but drawing on the coronation textbook, which the Libera regalis is. The manuscript that is used for Henry the Seventh had been that used for Richard III, and his name is just scratched out, and Henry VII <laughs> popped in, which in the circumstances is kind of intriguing. It matters that it looks like what came before. One very interesting thing you observe in your
1: work is that a Tudor coronation isn't just the day that the monarch is crowned. What happens on the day before?
0: I think it's best to understand as a kind of suite of ceremonies, really, that begins almost from the moment of the accession, but certainly prior to the coronation, they've moved themselves to the Tower of London. Sometimes that's accompanied by a beautiful pageant, like it was for Anne Boleyn in 1533, or a water pageant. Once they installed in the Tower, on the day before the coronation, they process from the Tower through the City of London to Westminster for the coronation the next day. And that procession became established in the medieval period. It was a moment for the city to acknowledge the incoming monarch. It became increasingly theatrical throughout the Tudor period. So by the time we get to Elizabeth I's coronation, her procession the day before consists of these mini shows with actors. At the beginning of the century, and I think for Henry and Catherine, the procession is less theatrical, more sacred. They are being kind of ushered towards their coronation. It's much more like the king is Christ-like. Now, we want to focus
1: the rest of our time thinking about the coronations of queens. And, of course, in the 16th century, the first queen to be crowned was a queen consort. It's Catherine of Aragon with Henry VIII in 1509. There was a precedent for this as well, of course. I mean, the most recent one being Richard III being crowned with his Queen Anne in 1483. So what happened to Catherine when she was crowned Queen of England... How much was it her coronation as well as Henry's, even though they don't have a joint monarchy?
0: It is important that she's there and that this is the coronation of a king and a queen consort, but it is Henry's coronation. It's much fuller, the language, for him. She is not anointed until after everything has been done for him. And she is anointed, but only twice on her chest and on her head. And she doesn't take an oath, but they both will appear together in their kind of thrones as for the tableau, her slightly lower. And she will also participate and did participate in the mass. She is in the role as a consort and the limitations that that has and the very particular expectations that have, which what it really is asking of the consort is that she will bear heirs. So what would we have
1: seen if we'd been there in terms of Catherine's role? What would she have worn? What did she hold? Did she have to lie prostrate before the altar as Henry did?
0: She would have appeared in Westminster Hall with Henry VIII before the procession to the Abbey, and there she appeared in the crimson coronation robes. They would walk together together, from the hall, along this kind of blue special cloth, into the abbey. She had her hair down, which she had to, as a sign of virginity, future fertility. There's her hair, her fair hair lying about her shoulders. She had a very tiny circlet, small crown on. She wouldn't have held anything until the end of the service, when she would have been given the queen's imperial crown on, which was part of the regalia, a scepter and an ivory rod. There's something very exposing about a coronation ceremony. They're right down to a kind of a linen shirt so that the oil can really get all over the body. This is quite exposing, potentially you know, quite humiliating, I think. It's less exposing for the queen consort because she's not anointed in so many places. So
1: the next coronation in the 16th century was of a queen alone. This is Anne In 1533, of course, and again, there's precedent for this solo coronation of a queen consort, Elizabeth of York, had been crowned separately from Henry VII. There's a similarity between the two. One of my PhD students spotted this. She said that both have a dragon spouting fire along the river as part of the water pageant going towards the tower. So just thinking about those festivities the day before the procession, the pageantry, is something like that, the dragon feature, a common thing we'd see in coronations? Or is it something special for this? Or is it a deliberate attempt to echo Elizabeth's
0: coronation? Yeah, I think there are deliberate echoes often. And Henry VIII and the coronation of Anne Boleyn in 1533 tried to echo many things. And underpinning that, or the desire underpinning that is for her to be seen as legitimate. And we see this again and again in coronations, particularly in the pageantry, It's a kind of opportunity to slightly rewrite history. But also to link her, it's like a kind of correction, isn't it, almost, of history. Even though they wanted to reuse props and things from Catherine of Aragon's coronation, her crown, not true by the way, her barge. You can also airbrush history, but you can also reuse things and reappropriate props and things that have happened.
1: So the lie you were referring to there is the story that Catherine was petitioned for her crown and refused to give it up and Henry had to have a new crown made for Anne.
0: Mm, I'm not sure I believe that. The Particular sources, particular ambassadors' accounts were very keen to broadcast how awful this all was and how it was in no one's interest for this to happen and no one was happy about this coronation and civil their own loyalties. The idea that the keeper of the crown was not allowed to give it up, I think, is completely implausible. This was part of the regalia. There's no way that that could not have been handed over, I don't think.
1: Talking of reactions, what was the reaction to Anne's procession? All that we can know really about what the public in London thought about her being crowned.
0: The published account of her procession, so not the water pageant, which was like Elizabeth the Yorks, but her pageantry, her procession through the City of London the day before her coronation, which was really elaborate. had the poets commissioned to write the lines and verses and really thought through The pamphlet that's published to accompany that procession or published soon after says it's all great and the crowds were really happy. There were crowds, they were joyful. This all sort of shores up what's happening. She is a legitimate queen, the divorce is legitimate, everything's going to be all right, she's pregnant and much is made of that. Gossipy Catholic ambassadors say that she was laughed at, that there were moments where the pageantry entwined their initials, H&A, to show their union. They laughed and scoffed and scorned it. There would have been a real mixture of reactions. And you have to be really careful, I think, when you're reading the sources. Just think about who is it who's saying this and were they actually there? I mean, a lot of the ambassadors report on events that they didn't witness. I think these moments of great spectacles draw on kind of contested reactions. You never can quite pin down why people are there or what they're really taking away from it. They're kind of conflicting, aren't they? You might've watched the Jubilee and thought, I'm not sure what I think about all of this, but you're moved by it, maybe still.
1: planes spacesuits condoms coffee plastic surgery warships over on the patented podcast by history hit we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own we uncover exceptional stories behind everyday objects we managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases unpack invention myths so the prince's widow immediately becomes certain. Thomas Edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time, can only have been eliminated by Thomas Edison, who at the time is arguably the most famous person in the West. And look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress.
0: You know, when people turn around to me and say, oh, why would you want to live forever? Life's rubbish. I just think that's a bit sad. I think it's a worthwhile thing to do. And the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever. So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify,
1: or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and
0: Sunday. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
1: Wherever you get your podcasts, brought to you by History Hit. Anne was crowned on a very deliberate day. She was crowned on Whit Sunday. Why that day? What was the significance of that?
0: If possible, the monarch and the consort should be crowned always on a Sunday, definitely, or on a holy day. And Whit Sunday is the second most important festival in the church after Easter. Anne Boleyn had only been her first public appearance in 1533 as Henry VIII's wife was at Easter. And then the next important festival in the church is Whit Sunday, which is associated with the descent of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, and it always falls on the 50th day after Easter. And it was the first kind of available moment, really, after it had been acknowledged they were married and also she was pregnant. It was in their interests for her to be crowned while she was pregnant. Obviously couldn't leave that too late because she might have the baby. Visibly, I think that was very powerful in the circumstances. And that could have really swayed people, I think, watching it. That's why that day was chosen, and I think it was the 1st of June in 1533.
1: I always think about how taxing the whole day must have been for Anne, you know, being about six months pregnant. Cranmer, so she's somewhat big with child. I mean, she must have spent the entire time wanting to go to the loo.
0: Yeah, maybe
1: feeling sick. I mean,
0: you know, God knows.
1: (laughs) Now, Henry wasn't there, or at least he couldn't be seen at Anne's coronation. She's very much alone in the midst of all of this. Why is
0: that? must have been a deliberate choice. I think for the pageantry, that is, again, a kind of echo of Elizabeth. It's almost as if it doesn't want to detract from her, and yet at the same time, you can really feel the presence of Henry behind it. For the actual coronation in the Abbey, the day after the procession, we can't be totally sure whether Henry was there or not. Plans for the coronation indicate that there was a area where he would go, where he would be in the abbey, but it says this is where the king may be and none of the sources, the sources are silent about Henry's presence in the abbey. Either they don't want to detract from what's going on, so the chronicles or Cranmer's accounts or anything, or he actually wasn't there. I'm not quite sure why he wasn't, but I think that it's about really focusing on her As his queen consort, it is not a kind of rehearsal of a coronation of him, even though the ceremony invokes him, I think.
1: And yes, in your book, you argue that actually, although Anne, of course, is evangelical, although Henry's in the midst of breaking away from Rome, this isn't a ceremony that's markedly Protestant in any way.
0: Only by thinking about who's doing it. (laughs) The cast, so Cranmer is crowning her and anoints her. And she is Anne Boleyn and her family and those that she's brought with her are there. But the ceremony itself could not be Protestant. It just couldn't articulate it. It had to use the same language. So it's only the context, I think, that sets up this kind of tension between what we're seeing and what she's going through and what actually this might mean. It surely meant that things were going to go in a different direction but the actual ceremony, what she was having to say, what was being said to her, were very similar, apart from a very significant change, I think, which is that she seems to have at one point been crowned with Sir Edward's crown. That is the crown that is only for the reigning monarch and had never sat on a queen's head, let alone a queen consort. So what was going on with that? It remembers Henry, but... Does it somehow link the ceremony to a new kind of monarchical authority, the kind of supremacy? I think the ceremony and Edward VI, which is the next one, do try to articulate the new kind of authority of a king in England. They are less able to bring in reforming promises. But you've got Cranmer there, so it's pulling away for sure.
1: Now, we're going to skip over, Edwards, to the next coronation of a woman, which was Mary I, on the 1st of October, 1553. And this is the first of an acknowledged queen regnant. And you know that the timing of Mary's coronation was crucial. How so?
0: I think Mary's coronation is the most interesting of them all. Not only had she won a successful coup in order to be there, the timing was crucial because she had to get crowned. Because if Lady Jane Grey had been crowned before her, it would have been much harder to have ousted her so mary had to be crowned but there's a really interesting worry amongst her councillors that parliament should possibly convene before she's crowned because they needed to undo the illegitimacy they were worried that she legally was still illegitimate that had never been revoked by parliament and that that needed to do so that the coronation itself couldn't undo that she consults her close advisors and says, you know, what do you think I should do about this? And they say, absolutely not. They're trying to bridle you, is the word that was used. They want you to be declared a Queen by Parliament first, rather than by coronation. So she says, no. It's a really interesting moment, that, because if she had been declared Queen by Parliament first, we would have had this moment of kind of flash forward to later in the 17th century. But she pushes back. So the timing of her coronation, that's an immediate context, as well as just having to be crowned because there are concerns about her faith and about her legitimacy and the fact that she's a woman.
1: Yes, that obviously is the key difference here. And it's really interesting looking at the commentary on her coronation. So from the Chronicle of Queen Jane, which depicts her twirling and turning the orb in her hand in Hollandshed, which suggests that she found the crown that she was wearing in the procession so heavy that she was fain to bear up her head with her hands. This is all really trivialising and belittling, and it sort of suggests that observers were struggling, conceptually, with the idea of a female monarch. Or at least it does to me. Do you think that's the case?
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. And there's also struggling with her being a Catholic monarch, certainly with the Chronicle of Queen Jane, Yes, there were anxieties around a female monarch because it, for certain observers it just didn't fit with what God would want. John Knox, towards the end of Mary's reign in his first blast of the trumpet, he writes about how ridiculous is it that you would see men bowing down before a queen. I mean, that's not the way it works. He's writing that with Mary, the first in mind. Of course she's Catholic and he's not, but that's about her gender and it plays out when Elizabeth comes to the throne as well in the pageantry, which is always a moment to reassure people about certain concerns they might have. There's a really interesting pageant where precedents are called on and they call on kind of Deborah from the Bible that you know there have been female rulers. There are commentators, John Hales, who writes it's part of God's plan. Yeah, you know, he wouldn't have let this happen. This is for Elizabeth, but it's true for Mary. There were anxieties, but I think we mustn't kind of overplay gender either. I mean, her legitimacy for Protestants and for Catholics alike, I think, was really important. She was Henry VIII's daughter. She was the next heir in line. And the deviation from the right line of succession was problematic, let alone her gender. And in the actual ceremony, she was crowned like a male monarch. Commentators, I think, get it wrong and say, oh, she was only kind of a queen's consort." And more of the sources record that she is anointed and crowned like a male monarch.
1: Did they have to adjust any elements for her as a woman or was it exactly the same?
0: I think it was almost exactly the same. The spurs aren't put on or there's conflicting accounts of whether or not she wore the spurs The robe's different, of course, but the certain garments that they put on, that was part of the regalia, you know, the kind of priestly kind of robe. There's no reason to think that she wasn't also dressed in that.
1: And that's so fascinating to have a woman dressed in priestly robes in the 16th century.
0: There's hardly any visual records. And it's also the case that commentators, they use this shorthand of saying, crowned according to the Tradition, all precedents, nothing was left out. Exactly the same, you know. It hides whether there were changes. All we've got for Mary are some slightly conflicting accounts. But I think that's commentators getting it wrong. Not sure whether the scepter she was holding was the scepter or the Queen's scepter. And you can easily see that if you're saying, "Oh, she was holding the Queen's scepter." Well, she's holding it because she's a queen. But it was so important that this ceremony did what it was meant to do and that the props were used that had the right symbolism. I mean, the scepter and the orb and those sort of symbols of spiritual and earthly power. She wouldn't have been the monarch if she didn't have those.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? We still have this problem with queen because it has these two usages. And we don't know from the word alone, whether we're talking about a ruling queen or a consort queen. And it's problematic. I mean, I can understand why we had King Christina of Sweden, why today have, you have know, a master of a college might be a woman because there's that kind of sense of adopting male titles because it's clearer.
0: Yeah, and Elizabeth and Mary being referred to as princes and that being accepted or understood, not gendered then. And Mary the I was to struggle with that throughout her reign and there were all kind of often attempts to rework what her authority was, particularly when she got married, but she pushed back against that, that she could be a queen... And a consort but she would not become a queen consort to a king philip that was not going to happen
1: now you mentioned the lack of visual sources but we do have one for the next coronation elizabeth's where she's presumably re-wearing mary's robes that image from the national portrait gallery now i know it's later i know it's about 1600 but that vision of this crowned queen with her robe of cloth of gold her ermine lined cloak her hair loose that people might know, and actually was also recreated in Shekhar
0: Kapoor's Elizabeth. Is that a broadly correct image of the coronation? Yes, I think so. It's a copy of an earlier portrait, which is probably missing. It's a conflation of the two events, though, or perhaps it's a record of what actually she was wearing, even though the sources might suggest otherwise. She's crowned, she's got her sceptre and her orb, but her hair is down, she's wearing the cloth of gold that we're told she wore for the procession the day before. So she's not depicted wearing crimson robes, as we are told she wore for the actual coronation. And I've never quite been able to work out why that might be, unless actually that's what she recessed in. They're meant to recess in their parliamentary robes. So once they've kind of then taken off the priestly garb, they retreat into St. Edward's Chapel and are kind of redressed to process back out of the abbey. You know, they obviously can't takes Edward's crown. That's all given back to the Abbey. And as they kind of recess out, which you kind of think that that image could be of, doesn't seem to be her in her throne at the moment of, you know, duh, that perhaps she did wear the cloth of gold for that. Or if it is from later, it is kind of a misremembering. It does show the cloth of gold dress, which we know she took out of Mary's wardrobe and had tweaked for herself. But yeah, broadly... It's a brilliant image, isn't it? I mean, of her youth. And I guess I'm also
1: interested in the extent to which ritual here is being reused, or whether Elizabeth, you know, avowedly Protestant monarch, I think we can say that, whether she's Protestant or not, people debate how much, but, you know, is going through the ceremony that's still in Latin. And there are questions about whether what we see here is something that is Protestant or not, or is it reformed in any way? Can you explain? this controversy, what happened and what it might know of it and what it means, really.
0: It's a bit of a muddle, actually, what happened in the middle of Elizabeth's coronation. It's what kind of got me first interested in coronations, actually, because there was this kind of scandal. Everyone was not thinking about What did she do? What happened? What did she think? What's she going to be? What kind of person is she? I love that kind of gossiping around it. Some things were reformed. What could be? So there was some flexibility around certain things that they could get away with. So some of the ceremony was in Latin and then in English. So the epistle, I think, was read in Latin and then in English. It kind of went back to something that had been authorised under Edward VI. So certain things were OK. The oath that she swore is very likely to have articulated that she was supreme head of the Church of England. There's a little of argument that in her oath that she was able to kind of smuggle in there that she would adhere to the Church of England. There's a confusion around, at Mass, whether the host was elevated or not, and with that gesture, whether there was an understanding, there was a Catholic understanding there, that some change had taken place. So sources are, yes it was or no it wasn't. What did happen was that at the moment when the Mass began to be celebrated, Elizabeth withdrew from the ceremony altogether, into a curtained closet, really, just by the altar. This wasn't that unusual to observe Mass in private, and Henry and Catherine had done the same back in 1509. The problem, by the time we get to 1559, is that we're not quite sure what is meant by this. Was it a Catholic Mass, and she withdrew because she didn't agree with it? She didn't want to be shown to be observing that? Was she sort of, sort of deliberately kind of hiding herself so that she couldn't be scrutinised at that key moment? And that actually would be a kind of strategy that I think we could kind of see in Elizabeth, just to frustrate. Are you not communicate something just by not saying or by not revealing herself? And then she could kind of have it both ways. She said much later in her reign, I was crowned according to Catholic ritual with Catholic oil, And with Catholic mass, she's sort of implying that where we've got to, you know, within 50 years from Henry to Elizabeth, is that those gestures or those symbols that are seemingly unchanged, actually what they mean has changed, and how to interpret them has become much more difficult. How
1: much do you observe from your research at play today? How much do you still see a strong relationship between ceremony and monarchy?
0: There's still a really strong relationship about the the visibility of the monarchy in this country. The language that goes with it, which is this is continuity, stability, tradition. It has been like this for hundreds of years. That is something we've told ourselves again and again and again. And I think that was also something that was important in the 16th century, this ability to say that it was unchanged. Things have changed. Definitely subtle things have changed, things are introduced, new traditions are brought in. But if you can broadly say it's unchanged, you've got no other way of being able to kind of imagine what it was like until it's recreated in the kind of pageantry we have today. And that's remarkable. But with that is still this kind of emotional attachment to the visibility of monarchy. The difference, of course, 16th century is that she had great power and they don't have that now. So what is that? There's a sentiment there. Which is a kind of an emotional power, even though there might not be a, a political one. We would feel very differently about our monarchy, I think, if it was so stripped down that we never saw any of this again. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't or couldn't. Our relationship with the past that we see reenacted through these ceremonies, we would lose that. That might be worth reflecting on.
1: Well, thank you very much for bringing that to our attention and for everything else as well that you've said, which has been such a fascinating look at this crucial ceremony and how it changed and didn't change over the course of this period when we're introducing women into the monarchy and changing the religion so thank you alice so much for talking to me
0: it's a pleasure susie thanks thanks for asking me
1: and thank you so much for listening to not just the tudors Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful.